Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. All right, so I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Uh, the title was uh, Spirit-Filled Organization, but it could also just be Spirit-Filled Leadership. Uh, what, what does this outline, what does this say to us uh, about what it means to be uh, leaders and servants in the church? Uh, just to remind us of where we are, though, we are in a series called What is the Church? where we are looking at different passages in the book of Acts. Uh, that, that give us some insights into what the church is. Uh, we began with the insight that this church has uh, both divine and human components to it. Uh, the divine part being that it's constituted through the spirit, um, a person of the three-in-one God, and that the church is more than just us. Uh, the church is God at work in the world. Uh, so we could ask that question, what is the church? And we could, noted that it is God at work in us through the Holy Spirit. In the next message, we, we looked at how God chooses to work in the church, and that is through his people. Um, we looked at the Spirit's arrival and the first descriptions of the church, and while there mentions miracles and healings, the focus is on the type of community that they were. They gathered together. They ate together. They were marked by their fellowship they were marked also by their generosity. Uh, Spirit-filled people serve one another. So we could also reflect on what is a church that is spirit-filled people who gather. And gathering is not just um, in the church services. It's sharing meals. It's learning together. It's being generous with one another. And, and now uh, we're going to see in what is the church. Uh, part of it is that it is led by servants. And we'll see that here in Acts chapter 6. Um, let's start our reading in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them, and so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Uh, well, I, I think I'd mentioned it a couple of times before, but I, I'd spent a good amount of time out in Israel. And one of my favorite places to visit when I was in Israel is a place called Caesarea Maritima. Uh, this is a place that's about midway, if you look at the kind of uh, north to south, it's midway through that, but it's right along the coast. Um, here's a picture that I took while I was down there. Uh, this is of an aqueduct there. So one of the most, um, the, the funnest parts of being there is that there's lots of archaeological foundations there. You, there's this heavy footprint, uh, particularly from the first century when, when Rome was there, because they built all these huge things. Uh, this was the aqueduct. It brought water in from about 14 kilometers down from there. So this was a long structure. Uh, it started off in Mount um, Carmel, which we know from the, the Elijah story. Um, and it worked its way all the way down to them. And you can see this is a big structure. Like, um, I can show another picture here just to prove I was there um, and fashionable at that. Um, but these, these were... These were big structures um, and that have survived the, the 2,000 years. Um, other things that you will find there is an amphitheater or a theater. Uh, I was there like three times, and this is the best photo. Apparently, just the edge was what I thought was important to capture, um, but I did find an aerial photo of it. So here we go. That, that theater there could seat 5,000 people. Um, other features that you'd find um, at Caesarea Maritima, here is a hippodrome. Um, this would have been designed specifically for chariot racing, uh, something that was really popular in Rome at the time. And to give just a better sense of what this would have looked like, here's an artistic rendering of it. So we have that same uh, theater here. We got the hippodrome. Uh, this would have been a palace just built right into the seaside by uh, Herod. Uh, so this would have been built right around that time of Jesus. And you'll see also the streets are in this grid-like fashion. Um, you don't find that sort of architecture and planning in the earlier cities and in the earlier archaeology. This is something distinct to something called Hellenization. Um, Hellenization is basically bringing Rome everywhere. Uh, Rome's big project. Everyone was to speak Greek, so you'd have everyone speaking one language, and you'd have all of the facilities that you would expect. You'd have the, the theater there that would have Roman poetry and plays and music. So they're just bringing Roman culture everywhere that they went. Um, one of the most impressive parts of Caesarea Maritima um, is this port over here. Uh, it might not look impressive, a little distance out there, uh, but this was actually a man-made port. Um, back in that day, they found a, um, or they developed a way of curing cement underwater, and in the midst of the waves and all of that, um, had these 50-plus ton uh, blocks that they would fit into the sea and actually created this port uh, because they wanted to have a, a way of doing trade and establishing themselves in the economy out there. And you'll see that as people came in here, the first thing that they would see as they came into that port was a temple, um, a temple to Augustus. Uh, so this is firmly something that would say uh, this is Rome's presence here in Israel. That's what Hellenization really meant. And for me, uh, Caesarea Maritima is symbolic of this greater tension within Israel at that time. 
Uh, the same architectural structures that we have here, they're not only happening in this one city, they're happening all over. This is pressure into Jerusalem as well. They're, they're building these structures. They're forcing Rome onto everyone. And this would have been a struggle for the people of the day, the Jewish people who were trying to maintain their identity in the midst of the growing pressures of Hellenization. The Jewish people were characterized by trying to hold on to their ancient identity of the people of God, actively resisting the powers of Rome, resisting the Greek language, their grotesque forms of entertainment, the, the Hippodrome, there would also be uh, gladiator fights as well as uh, animal shows. Um, there's the worshiping of foreign gods. There's actually two temples here in Caesarea Maritima alone. Uh, for a significant group in Israel, to be faithful meant resisting Hellenization. So all of that is to say, when we come across this in our first line of our passage today, that there is a conflict between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, this is signifying a really big conflict, a massive struggle. These Greek-speaking Jews didn't just happen to speak a different language. They had learned the language of the enemy. While they were still Jewish, they had given in to some of the, the pressures that were happening around them. They had assimilated Roman culture into their lives. They took on Greek names instead of their traditional Jewish ones. They had names like Stephen and Philip, and they came from Roman-type cities like Antioch. Now, looking at this passage, something shows up here. And that is that spirit-filled people, uh, the people of this church, aren't suddenly just these perfect people with no blind spots. Um, Luke isn't giving a picture of a blemish-free church that's getting everything 100% right. There are people complaining, and rightfully so. There's favoritism between these two groups, between the Hellenistic ones, or specifically the, the Hebraic Jews were showing favoritism to their own people. Now think of this. These were people that were accepting cultural practices that the others just weren't okay with, and now you're just supposed to let these people in. Uh, not only that, you're supposed to share meals with them, and this could be particularly challenging because the Hellenistic Jews may have had different dietary restrictions. There would have been generations of separation here that they were supposed to just immediately bring together, let alone the, the language barrier that they would have faced. One of the things that we can look at here is that simply being generous isn't quite um, enough. That there needs to be equity in their generosity. Uh, the fact that they were just being generous to the Hebraic Jews doesn't mean that they were living rightly as a community. They had to be paying attention to what their potential blind spots might be. Uh, were they actually being generous for all people, or were they showing favoritism? And a lesson that we have, and something that we can reflect on from, as a church from this, is in what way are we intentional of looking at where our blind spots may be? Um, are, are we attentive to what other people are saying about the church? Like they, they had the option of just saying, well, those are your complaints, but I think we're doing just fine. Just look at how generous we are. It takes listening 
to be able to see some of the blind spots that we may have. Now, this could be in a variety of different areas. I'll just name a few. Um, our blind spots could be in places like mental health. Um, are we willing to listen and hear the stories that people say within our churches that tell about the, um, the hurt that they've experienced within the church? Um, our blind spots can include material poverty in our community. Is our church a safe place for all people to come and feel a sense of belonging? Our blind spots can include uh, cultural practices that perhaps echo a Dutch heritage and exclude the growing diversity that we find within the Christian Reformed Church. Our blind spots can also include areas like sexuality. Are we able to listen to the single people who point out that there is favoritism often happening in the subtle ways towards couples and families? Are we able to hear those who are addicted to pornography and don't feel like the church is a safe place to be able to find healing in the midst of their addiction? And of course, our blind spots can be on something else entirely, like things that we don't have examples for uh, because they're blind spots. We, we, we don't see them. The things that divide us might not be as simple and in your face as Hellenism was. Uh, it wasn't as simple as buying into all the things of Rome. But we still have things that can potentially divide us. And it takes listening. It takes ongoing discernment uh, to be able to discern how to respond well. Uh, to revisit some of the language that um, I'd used when we began our series, like the church has this both divine and human um, components to it. The divine part is that God constitutes the church. Jesus is the head. Uh, we are the church only in and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the human part is that God chooses to work through people. And the people that God is working through don't suddenly become perfect. Um, they are ordinary, broken, misunderstood people, people who are in the process of being redeemed. Uh, people are in the process, we, we use this word, uh, sanctification. We are in the process of becoming more and more Christ-like as we grow. One of my favorite descriptions of, of the church is this. Churches are communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages across the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them in and does his work in them. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called a pastor and is designated the responsibility in the community to keep it attentive to God. Uh, this description holds, I think, two of these things in, in tension well. Uh, we are gathered, constituted by the Holy Spirit, uh, but we are far from perfect. We are sinners who have so many things in our lives that pull us from God. And we need to be a community. Uh, we need leaders in this community who faithfully redirect our attention towards God, reminding ourselves of God's grace, lest we uh, get carried away and just focusing on our, our own brokenness. So sin shows up in our passage here through humanity through favoritism being shown to one group, while another group felt like they weren't being seen, that they were being overlooked. The response to this 
is that they organize themselves. They, they appoint leaders here. And I think this is a, just a significant thing to, to recognize, that, that spirit-filled people organize themselves. Uh, I think this is a big deal because sometimes we look at the Holy Spirit and, and we think of it simply in terms of these prompt or these sudden promptings, these sporadic kind of more impromptu events. But here, the Spirit is at work specifically in the planning. The Spirit prompts them to organize uh, seven Hellenistic Jews. And we see that the, the seven people that are named here are Hellenistic because of their names being Greek. Uh, one of them's even from Antioch and a convert to Judaism, uh, so not maybe Jewish in the way that we often think of it. And they appoint these to be leaders to make sure that those people will not be left out. Um, the big characteristic that we find about leaders in here is that the leaders are called to be servants. And this is the call for every Christian leader. Uh, this is what it means to lead in the pattern of Christ. And, and Luke is intentional about drawing this connection that the, the leaders are the people that serve uh, because they are serving in imitation of Christ. Uh, one of the, the passages where Luke draws this picture of Jesus as the one who serves is later in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 22, at the place of the Last Supper. So Jesus, after serving the bread and, and the wine, and that, that famous supper happens, right after that, we're heard that the, the disciples start arguing amongst each other. And they're arguing about who's going to be top. Who's going to be first? Who's going to be the one who has the power, who has the ability to delegate other people and have others serve underneath them? And Jesus, in the midst of that, proclaims that it's not about having other people, um, being able to delegate other people underneath you. That's not what the power is about here. He announces to them that Jesus himself is among them as one who serves to be, to be Christ-like, to be invited into service, is, is to serve other people. And so we see in the early church, these people are appointed as servants, appointed to show the goodness of the gospel of Christ, not in having power to command over other people, but a power that is directed into the service of others. Uh, we see in response to this in our passage that the church grows um, this isn't necessarily a, a church growth strategy here, but it is the fact that their attentiveness to the gospel and care for others led to something that was attractive, that other people wanted to join in on. Uh, through the work of the deacons, through the work of the people here, uh, that, that freed up space for the apostles to join in their work of prayer and the ministry of the word, uh, so that this could be working well and that they could be serving all of the people, this led towards people seeing it and wanting to join in. They, other people saw it and they saw the gospel truth, the good news of Jesus in the way that the church was living it out. Um, so looking back at our passage then, I just want to um, comment on what qualifies the people into leadership, into ministry here. And I'm going to look at it from 
uh, the lens of the NLT because it, it comes up a little bit more clearly here. You'll find similar translations in the NET and the ESV. Um, but the, you'll find that in this passage, there are actually three things that qualify the people for leadership as Luke tells it. The three parameters are is that these are people who are well-respected, who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Uh, this is a kind of an interesting point, I think, because the problem is in the distribution of food. And the first thing that the people do isn't necessarily go and find the bakers and the restaurant owners. Uh, they don't find the people who are skilled in the distribution of food specifically. Uh, they don't go and find the people that are especially good with numbers and get them together so that they could make sure that everything is efficiently distributed. What they find are people who are well-respected in the community. Uh, the, the qualifications of our leader run parallel to what we expect of people who are living out their calling and following Jesus. People who had shown already a willingness to lead through serving, they had lived this out in a way that was respected. They had a reputation for being servants already. That's what qualifies them. They were also those who were wise. Uh, maybe some of us are intimidated by that part, that, that we have to know every, what's in every book and we have to study in this. But this isn't just about knowledge. Wisdom is about being able to live in the midst of the challenges of the world. The qualification for leadership in wisdom is lived faithfulness. And the third qualification is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is demonstrated in the people through the Spirit's continued work in their life. Um, are these people showing the evidence of the Holy Spirit through their continually being formed into the likeness of Christ? Are they being people that serve? Uh, so what qualifies leadership in the church, whether it's elders or deacons or elsewhere, being spirit-filled people who are schooled in service? Now, one example of people who model this in our church is our deacons. And I'll single that ministry out today uh, because this passage is looked at as the origin of the diaconal role. The word for deacon shows up in our passage uh, because the word for deacon is to serve. It, uh, deacons are kind of literally servants or servers. Our deacons have a similar responsibility to what these leaders had. So we, re we remember the, the lack of equality in the distributing of good, goods between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Well, the, the deacons were the ones designated to make sure that the widows, these people who were vulnerable in their society, were all getting, um, that they weren't being overlooked. And this isn't to say that these seven people now were in charge of doing all of the work. Uh, they didn't just appoint these people so that everyone else could just kind of rest from having to serve. Uh, they were chosen as leaders to equip the rest of the church into what they were doing. They were to be organizers who, in their wisdom, equip each and every person in their role of serving. And when we look at the role of, of deacons in the CRC, 
this is exactly what we find. If you go on the uh, Diaconal Canada website, you'll find the primary task of deacons, as they announce it, is the equipping and the mobilizing of the church. Uh, the deacon's responsibility is to remind the church that each person is called to diaconal work, whether or not they have the title or not. These aren't special people who do the work for us, but people that equip us to serve in a, in a way that looks at the world and it's hurting. And I love this about the structure of our church. Um, when we think about mission, we, we don't go and just hire out certain professionals to do mission work for us. Uh, it's always been embedded in what we are as a church in that this is something that has been equipped out for each and every person. This is a reminder, too, of, of the priesthood of all believers. We're, we're all called into this work. So how might we grow as servants then? What are just some, just a couple of ways that we could practically uh, live this out? Well, one is in um, continuing to learn, uh, to continuing to grow into our wisdom. Um, our deacons have been modeling this learning, I think, really well. Um, this Monday, I'm told the deacons will be discussing chapters 5 and 6 of a book called When Helping Hurts. Uh, this is a book that looks at the, kind of the definitions of what is material poverty, what is poverty in this world, and what are ways that we can actually come in and help and, and to bring alleviation of this poverty in a way that doesn't make us superior from the other uh, people that we're coming alongside, in ways that don't actually end up unintentionally hurting uh, those other communities as well as ourselves. Uh, and it does so from this great biblical foundation. Uh, it's great to see this, this engagement. Part of learning what it means to be servers is to continue in our learning but it's not just about learning about it, of course. It's about living into this. Uh, so another way that we can um, grow as servant is actually to go out and practice being a blessing. And we heard from uh, Corwin this morning. Uh, we'll hear from someone else next week of, of the Deacon Advent Project. Uh, something that we've been doing is practicing going out and actually being a blessing. But more than that, um, one of the things I like about the Deacon Advent Project is the sharing of it. Uh, we're, we're free to share the things that we're doing because these aren't things that we're kind of patting ourselves on the back for, for the good things that we came up with and that we did. Uh, these are all about our attentiveness to God and the Spirit's prompting, how God has provided ways of blessing in the community. Uh, these are ways, uh, stories that we can tell about God's kingdom at work in and through uh, the different people in our community. Uh, and the, one of the great things that I've found about it is that we can have um, 10 different people and 10 different groups and have 10 completely different stories. Uh, the, the unique context that God has placed you in gives a unique place for you to be able to serve and to hear how God has uniquely equipped you to be a blessing where you are. So looking at this passage, we can look at this question of what is the church? And we can see that it is a community filled with servants and led by servants. And as we reflect on what it means to be a servant leader, I have a few questions that, that you can take home. And as we reflect on the questions, I also invite the, the worship team forward.
first question that I want us to be considering throughout the week. Are we aware that we have blind spots? Um, can we be good listeners to the hurts in our community? Uh, how does this change uh, the way that we enter into our communities and um, provide our, our help? Uh, second, do you disqualify yourself from leadership based off of skills? Uh, do you kind of look at that first story and be like, well, I'm not a baker, so like, I guess I'm not in for this whole distribution of food? Um, or do we see this heart of service, this um, presence of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom as the things that qualify us into our ministry? And finally, how are you growing as a servant? Uh, we remember here that we're called not just to be servers, uh, but we're also called to multiply in our service. Are, are we mentoring others and showing how to serve well? Uh, we just had the, the baptism this morning, and we committed ourselves. Uh, that last thing that we said was that we were committed to, to pray for them, to teach, and to serve them. Um, are we serving those in our community? Uh, let's come before God in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the equipping of your leaders, uh, for people who can ensure that we're paying attention to the vulnerable and the marginalized in our society. Uh, help us to keep our eyes open for those who are hurting, for those whom we're called to be a blessing. We pray that we can see the evidence of being your spirit-filled people through the way that we care for those around us, uh, through the ways in which we serve uh, those in our presence. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.